The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 20 and verse 24, the 24th verse in the 20th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Now those who meet here regularly will know that during the Sunday evenings of this month of October we've been considering together some of these great descriptions which are given us of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we are obviously continuing with that theme this evening. And here we consider these words in this passage in the 20th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles. This passage, it's always seemed to me, is certainly the most lyrical and perhaps one of the most moving passages which is to be found in the whole of the Bible. It's grand simply as literature. I never read this passage without being profoundly moved. I remember so well the first time that I really saw what it was. The trouble with us all is that we tend to read the scriptures with half our minds or even less. And thus we miss their glory. I shall never forget the first occasion when I really first read this passage. It's over 37 years ago, but I still remember it. I still recall what I felt on that occasion. Here it is, you see, this grand and great man bidding farewell to the elders of the church at Ephesus, going up to Jerusalem, not knowing what was awaiting him, except that in all cities the Holy Ghost did testify that bonds were in store for him. And so he takes this opportunity of reminding these elders of his ministry, of what he'd done amongst them and what he had done elsewhere. He shows that he's proud of it, proud of his calling. This ministry, he says, which I have received of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing beyond that. And the Lord Jesus should have given a man a ministry. And he'd given it to the apostle. And he glories in it, he rejoices in it, he magnifies his office, as he always does. And he reminds them of how he worked amongst them. Not only preaching in public, but from house to house. Not only by day, but also by night. He reminds them of all this. He was indefatigable. No man ever worked harder than this man. And he reminds them even of his tears. Twice over he reminds them that he spoke to them with tears. But he goes beyond even that. He says that thus he, he is assured that he's going up to Jerusalem and that bonds await him. But he says none of these things move me. They don't disturb me at all. Neither count I my life dear unto myself. He's ready, if necessary, to lose his life. He'll go on with the ministry. People can't frighten him. We read in the next chapter how they almost physically tried to detain him, but he wouldn't. He would go on. Here's a man, I say, who's ready, if necessary, to lose his very life. And he did finally lose it, and many others lost it with him. Now the question is, what explains all this? 
Why did he feel like that? Why does he magnify his office? Why is he so proud of being a preacher? Why is he ready, as I say, even to suffer death if necessary while preaching this gospel? Now, there's only one answer to that question, and that is the answer that he gives here himself. It is because it is the gospel of the grace of God. And this has so taken him up and has so charmed him, so filled him with a sense of glory that nothing else really matters. But he goes on preaching not only because the thing itself is so glorious and so wonderful, but also because of his concern for men and women. This is what broke his heart in a sense. He looks round and about him and he sees men and women in sin and in misery and unhappiness. And he says they're like that because they know nothing about this gospel of the grace of God. And he's bound to tell them. That's why he tells the Romans that he's a debtor. He feels he's a debtor to all men, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. He's got something, this tremendous thing, the gospel of the grace of God, and men and women don't know about it. And so he says, I must go on preaching it, whatever happens to me. Whatever the authorities may do to me, they may even kill me. That can't stop me. I must tell people about this. The thing itself is so glorious, the need of the people is so great. And not only that. He was troubled by the way in which people misunderstood this. And especially those false teachers who dogged his footsteps and who followed him round as he traveled and who went with their little theories and their pet philosophies and tried to persuade people that Paul's message wasn't a true one, but that they should listen to them. He reminds, you remember these elders here at uh, Ephesus, how he'd warned them when he was with them that after his departure, people like that would come along and some might even arise in the church at Ephesus. And he says, don't listen to them. They haven't got the gospel of the grace of God. These petty little legalists. And so, you see, he puts this great and glorious gospel as over and against this false and spurious teaching. Well, that's the character of this man. And he was especially troubled by the state and condition of his own fellow countrymen, the Jews. This to him was the tragedy of tragedies. That there they were, still trying to put themselves right with God and failing and refusing this gospel of the grace of God. So he says, I don't care what happens to me. I must go and testify to this. I must let everybody know about it. Now, my friends, I'm calling your attention to all this, as I've been doing on previous Sunday evenings, for precisely the same reason. There is no question that the greatest tragedy in the world tonight is the ignorance of mankind of this gospel. The world is in trouble. Men and women individually are in trouble. Why? Well, because they know nothing about this gospel of the grace of God. And, of course, what heightens the tragedy is this, that this gospel is so misrepresented. I have to go on referring to this, and I'm following in the footsteps of the great uh, apostle. He reminds uh, these elders of the church at Ephesus how he had uh, reminded themselves, reminded them, and uh, <clears throat> that he had not ceased to do so, of these dangers that were going to arise. There's a foolish, superficial, 
notion current today in many circles in the church that one must never be negative, that one must never denounce false teaching. We must praise everybody and everything. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. The Apostle Paul did the exact opposite. I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, he says, watch. And remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. And a man who doesn't expose evil teaching is a man who doesn't know much about the gospel of the grace of God. You see, these other teachings, these misrepresentations of the gospel, they're not only wrong, but they're so small. As the apostle shows here, put them by the side of this gospel of the grace of God. How contemptible they are. And that's the tragedy to me, that men and women should be reducing this gospel, oh, to just a little bit of morality or ethics, some of them just to politics. Such small things, there's no glory about it, there's no majesty, there's nothing thrilling and tremendous. That kind of teaching would never produce a paragraph like this. Not only that, these teachings that pass as gospel today, so frequently these human philosophies and little bit of ethics and so on, they not only don't compare with what we read here, but you see, they don't even explain our, how our hymns have ever come into being. Where have these great hymns we've been singing tonight come from? Take that last hymn we've been singing. Would your modern representations of the gospel, which say that God is depth and wherever there's kindness, there's God and his love, would they produce hymns like this? Grace is a sweet, a charming theme. My thoughts rejoice at Jesus' name. You see, this is the way to test the gospel, or anything that's offering itself to you as a gospel. Does it have the, this effect upon you? That having read it or having heard it, you get up and you say, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. That's the test. If it doesn't have that effect upon you, well, then you really don't know much about it. The moment a man has some kind of insight into this gospel of the grace of God, he's filled with a sense of wonder, love, and praise, astonishment and amazement, and he doesn't know how to give expression to that which he feels within his breast. Well, now then, the question I'm putting to you, therefore, my dear friends, tonight is this. Uh, do you want this? Do you want the thousand tongues? Is your understanding of this gospel such that you are moved and thrilled and almost overwhelmed by it and feel that you can't give expression to it? Here, I say, is the test. And the only thing that can ever bring us into such a state or condition is the realization of the truth which is put before us so vividly and graphically here by the great apostle in this Wonderful phrase. We've been looking at other aspects. We've been looking at the historicity, the historical aspect, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've been looking at the element of glory. We've been looking at its everlasting character. And in doing so, we have seen that the gospel 
tells us a great deal about the wisdom of God and about the power of God. You see, it's all about God. It's the glorious gospel of the blessed God, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. And you see, if your gospel doesn't give you some new understanding of the being and the character of, of God himself, well, you may very well be believing some bit of psychological teaching using the name of Jesus. But the gospel always makes a man feel filled with a sense of amazement at the wisdom and at the power of God. But not only that, says the apostle, it shows in a very particular manner the grace of God. And that's the thing that's engaging our attention on this particular occasion. Oh, I don't care what they do to me, says Paul, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life, dear, unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy and the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the good news of the grace of God. Now, the word grace really introduces us uh, to something of the glorious content of the statement. Grace means favor shown to the utterly undeserving. Favor and kindness shown to people who don't deserve it. Very well. The apostle says here, this is the way he describes it here, that the gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. What's it mean? Well, let me try to hold it before you. I want to make you sing, my friends. And a preacher who doesn't make his congregation sing is a very poor, very poor preacher. You don't make people sing by just uh, exhorting them to morality. You don't make them sing by just asking them to imitate Jesus. That never made me sing. That makes me feel a sense of utter despair. I can't satisfy myself. Leave alone imitate Christ. But the gospel makes people sing. And only the gospel of the grace of God can ever do that. Now then, what's it mean? Well, the first thing it tells us is this. That the very fact that there is any good news at all in the world tonight is solely due to the grace of God. A gospel. And gospel, remember, means good news. In a world of darkness, in a world of despair, there is good news tonight. Everything is not hopeless. There is a way of deliverance. There is a way of escape. There is good news. And uh, what this tells us is that the fact that there is a gospel at all, that there is good news at all, that there's any hope in the world tonight, is entirely due to the fact that God is a God of grace. What does that mean? Well, it means this. It all arises in the character of God himself. That's what grace really means. God hasn't responded to anything that's gone up from men. The gospel isn't God's reply to anything. No, no, it began with him. So many people seem to think of it that other way around. That we go... In our troubles to God, and we say we are sorry, and we ask, and that God responds. That's not gospel. That's not gospel. The gospel is the gospel of the grace of God. He doesn't merely respond to us. He initiates. This is the great message of the whole of the Bible. That God has planned and purposed redemption, salvation. And that he has done so before the foundation of the world. So it can't be a response to anything in us. 
because God had planned this before we were, before anybody was, before the world had ever come into being or existence. All this was planned before the foundation of the world. It came out of the mind and the heart of God himself. It is an expression of this quality of grace. And that is, of course, the very essence of the gospel. And as I've been pointing out, it is the only hope in the world tonight. There's nothing else. Everything else we know has already been tried and it's already been proved to be a failure. That's why we are so silly to get excited about modern theories. They're all repetitions of something that's been before. There's nothing new under the sun. You've had your idealism before and all your other philosophical theories. There's nothing new. You know, the Greek philosophers had rarely put thought right through. There's been no addition to them, really. There's been modification of their theories. There's been no addition. It was when the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of the thing preached to save them that believe. It's always been like that. And I say, therefore, that there is no hope in the world tonight. There is no good news in the world tonight apart from this. But here it is, and this is the whole message of the Bible. We are conscious of failure. And we wonder what can be done. Here comes the answer. God's got a plan. God has worked out a plan. And God has been putting that plan into operation. That's the message of the Bible. God's grace being put into execution in the plan of salvation. The Bible, if you like, is the history of redemption. It's the account of how God is saving a people for himself. And will finally save the whole universe. That's what this message is. That's the whole message of the Bible from beginning to end. But remember, it is entirely something that has originated in the mind and the heart of God. That's the first point at which you must always start with this gospel. We are so self-centered and so self-important and man is so important in our esteem. But you see, this starts by telling us that it's all from God. In the beginning, God, he who created, and he's been acting ever since. This is how the apostle, this same apostle Paul puts it, you remember, in writing to Titus, he reminds him of it. He says, the grace of God which bringeth salvation hath appeared. It's come. That's the message of Christianity. It's appeared. It's come. It's come in Jesus Christ. The grace of God that bringeth salvation, nothing else can bring it. It's come. It has appeared in Jesus Christ. Or if you like, I can put it like this. The great word in the gospel is the word gave. God so loved the world that he gave. That's grace. Grace always gives. He gave his only begotten son. He's the God who gives, the God who acts, the God who is saving his people. And it's all from him. It is all of grace. By grace he has saved. That's it. It's always grace. Grace from beginning to end. Now, my friends, are we all clear about this? It's not in any way a response to you or to me. The glory is entirely his. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We wouldn't be here tonight if God were not a God of grace. There wouldn't be a glimmer of hope in the gloom and the darkness of this sinful world tonight were it not that God is a God of grace. 
You don't understand it, of course you don't. Who can understand such things? We're not meant to understand them. How did he do it? I don't know, but this I do know that he has. Because he's a God of grace, he's planned it all, and he's sent it, and it's working out. And there is hope for everybody this night because of God being a God of grace. The gospel of the grace of God. Well, that's the first element. That it is what we may call self-generated grace. Arising in the heart of the eternal because his name is love. It's the only explanation of it. But let me show you how to understand that and how to grasp that. Because the good way of looking at grace is this. Still more wonderful in a sense than the fact that there is a gospel at all in the world tonight. Is that it is a gospel which is offered to us. Offered to people like us. Not only I say... Is the gospel not a response or a reaction on the part of God to anything in us? It is the exact opposite of that. It is God, I say, showing favor to those who don't deserve any favor at all. No, you can't understand the doctrine of grace without understanding that particular element. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it, you see, in writing to the Romans. He says there in that first chapter where he introduces his great gospel, which is this gospel of grace always, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. There's the clarion call. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm proud of it. I'm ready to come to Rome to preach it. I'll go anywhere to preach it. I'll lay down my life in the preaching of it. Why? Well, why are you so proud of it? Well, he says, the answer is this. Listen. For the wrath of God is revealed, has already been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's why the apostle is thrilled with this gospel of the grace of God. The wrath of God, he says, has already been revealed. And this is where the grace of God comes in. And this is what makes this grace of God so amazing and astonishing. The world is under the judgment of God. It's under the wrath of God. Now, whether you like that or not, that's a fact. And if you're a bit in doubt about it, let me ask you to look at the modern world, and there you'll see the wrath of God against sin. That's what Paul argues, you see, in the remainder of that first chapter of the epistle to the Romans. He says, God sometimes manifests his wrath against sin by just withdrawing his restraints, and he allows sin and evil to be rampant and to run loose and to run riot. And so they begin to become moral perverts as well as being immoral. And they descend to any depths of filth and degradation. That's the wrath of God upon men holding back his restraints. Don't you see the wrath of God in Great Britain tonight? I was being told by a man who was a first eyewitness. And there's most extraordinary information about it the other night. About devil worship in this country. Black magic. Black mass in this country, yes, in the universities, as well as amongst other people. High and low, black magic, devil worship, black mass. Quite apart from all these horrible perversions that we're all so aware of. 
My friends, that's a manifestation of the wrath of God upon the sin and the rebellion of mankind. And of course, he's made it abundantly plain and clear, as the apostle says. The world is under the wrath of God because men has rebelled against him. Men has stood up against God and has defied him and has deliberately broken his commandments. And therefore he has come under condemnation. He flouts God's holy will and God's holy laws. And the result is that man is in the hands of God and he deserves punishment. And this is true of everybody. Listen again to the apostle summing it all up in Romans 3. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, this is the fundamental postulate of biblical teaching. This is the essential preliminary to any preaching of the gospel, of the grace of God. It's no use just saying to people, come to Jesus. They will say, why should I come to Jesus? That's why the masses are not in chapels and churches in this country tonight. They say, we couldn't care less. We don't need any help any longer. Why do they say that? Simply because they don't know that they're under the wrath of God. They don't know God's hatred of sin. They don't know what's awaiting them. They don't know that they're dead in trespasses and sins. They don't know that when they die, they have to stand before God in the judgment. There's nothing more idiotic that I'm aware of than that people should say, fancy saying that in 1964. Do people still believe that? What has time to do with this question? What's time got to do with it? 1964. What's 1964? How does it differ from 64 A.D.? doesn't differ at all. God is God still, and is the everlasting and holy and eternal God. And all your boasted and vaunted civilization and advances, they're nothing in his sight. The nations are but like the small dust of the balance. We get so excited about the nations and the groupings and the powers that be like the small dust of the balance, like a drop in the bucket. The everlasting and eternal God, he looks down upon it all and all have sinned and come short of his glory and there is none righteous, no, not one. And men in sin, dead in trespasses and sins, he is under the wrath of God and he deserves punishment and he will get punishment unless... Unless what? Unless he believes and accepts this gospel of the grace of God. See, that's what the apostle is saying. I'm not ashamed of it. Why, well, I'm, I'm glorying in it, and I'm ready to go anywhere and preach it. I'm ready to die for it if necessary. Because it's such amazing good news that a world that deserved to be damned and eternally destroyed, that God has so loved it that he's done something in grace about it. See, this is the thing that thrilled the great apostle and that should thrill every single one of us. You and I cannot imagine what sin is in the sight of God. It's utterly abhorrent to him. 
You and I know, don't we, what it is to feel a sense of disgust at certain things that we see people doing. We know what it is to feel a sense of disgust with ourselves for things we've done and said and thought. But oh, imagine what it means in the sight of God, that holy God, that God who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. What must it mean to him? Sin can't exist in his holy presence. And he has said it's plain here. He's taught mankind through the Jews and the law which he gave to them through Moses that he does hate it and that his nature must punish it. He cannot refrain from punishing it. If God didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be God. He must because he's light and in him is no darkness at all. And we all deserve the punishment of hell. We haven't a plea. We haven't a leg to stand on. There's nothing we can say for ourselves at all. When you really examine yourself and see the meanness, the smallness, the pettiness, the uncleanness, the vileness, the rottenness. Any man who knows himself knows that that's true of him by nature. The apostle says that about himself in me. That is to say, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Do you say to me, I'm a respectable person? Respectable. Are you? Could you stand up to the examination of men? Still less could you stand up to the x-ray of God's searching eye. Rottenness. That which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. How mad we are to pit our little understandings against the being and the character of this holy God under whom we are and in whose presence we meet and whoever is looking down upon us. The wrath of God. Now, why have I said all that? I've said all that for this reason. That it is only as we have some glimmering of an understanding of that that we have a beginning of a glimmering of an understanding of the grace of God. You see, this is the thing. That though that is true of us, every one of us, God so loved the world, the world that I've just been describing, that he gave his only begotten son. He's done it in spite of us. If he'd done it for good people, well, we'd understand it. But he's done it for us, for sinners, for rebels, for enemies. All under condemnation. Those who've rebelled against him and spat into his face and have turned away in self-righteousness away from him and in self-confidence. It is for such creatures that he's done it. That's grace. Not only, I say, is it not a response to anything that goes up from us, it's all entirely in spite of us. In spite of us. Entirely in spite of us. You were he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. By grace are he saved. God would be more than justified if he condemned us all to eternal destruction and the whole world. But the message of the gospel of the grace of God, the good news of the grace of God is just to say this, he hasn't done it. Away before time he's worked out this plan, grace has come into operation. There is a way of escape, there is a possibility of deliverance. And it is solely and entirely due to the grace of God. Oh, what a gospel, but let's go on. I found it very difficult, you know, to know what to leave out from this sermon. 
one really needs many hours to try to deal with this and then I'd only be beginning. But I have chosen out a rather wonderful phrase that the Apostle uses about this. Again in writing to those Ephesians. It's a most glowing thing this. I do hope this is coming out of what I'm trying to say very feebly this evening. Am I giving you some impression of the glory of this gospel? The thrilling character. Something that moves a man as it moved this mighty apostle and made him say what he said to those Ephesian elders. Listen to him then in the second chapter again of the epistle to the Ephesians. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us even when we were dead in sins hath quickened us together with Christ by grace he are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus, through Christ Jesus. Now, you don't want me to stop, do you? If you do, my friend, believe me, it's because you're blind, because you're in the darkness of sin, because you know nothing about the grace of God. Listen, the exceeding riches of his grace. The apostle was in trouble. Language was inadequate. His superlatives have been exhausted, and still he hasn't said what he's trying to say. What do you mean, says someone? Oh, let me just give you a glimpse or two into what he means here by the exceeding riches of this grace of God. Look at it like this. Look at the one who makes this salvation possible for us. How has God manifested his grace? How does the grace of God save us and deliver us? And the answer is, it is in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace. Do you want to know anything about grace? Here it is. It's all again, you see, in John 3:16. God so loved the world, this is the measure of his grace, that he gave, he sent into it, his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Oh, you remember again, let me remind you of it, Isaac Watts' tremendous description of it. See, he says, where it shines in Jesus' face, the brightest image of his grace. You want to see the grace of God? Look into the face of Jesus Christ. God, in the person of his Son, has all his mightiest works outdone. The spacious earth and spreading flood proclaim the wise and powerful God. And thy rich glories gleam afar, from af glories from afar, sparkle in every rolling star. But in his looks a glory stands the noblest labor of thy hands, the radiant luster of his eyes. Outshines the wonders of the skies. There's only one thing to say after that. Grace, tis a sweet, a charming theme. My thoughts rejoice at Jesus' name. Ye angels dwell upon the sound. Ye heavens reflect it to the ground. What a glory. Oh, it's the glory of the grace of God. And you see it in the face of Jesus Christ. This, my dear friends, is where you really begin to understand something about the grace of God. 
in order to forgive you and me and all the world in its sin and shame, all of us who've fallen short of the glory of God. None of us is righteous. What has God done? Well, you see, he sent his only son into the world. Sent his son from the glory, his only begotten, his beloved son. He sent him out of that glory down into earth to be born as a babe, to be despised of men, to be reviled and spat upon. This is where you see grace. All this done for you and for me and people like us. But you know, he not only sent him into this world, there's something still more amazing and astonishing, and this is where you see grace. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? He not only sent his son from, earth, from heaven to earth, he sent him to the cross on Calvary's hill. It wasn't men who produced the death of Christ. It was God, according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every man. The grace of God not only sent him into this world to endure the contradiction of sinners against himself, it sent him to endure even unto blood. It sent him to that cruel, ignominious death. It laid our sins upon him. God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's grace. God putting your sins upon him and punishing him for what you deserved. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. They would otherwise but have everlasting life. Well, that's only a glimpse. God willing, I'll come back some future Sunday evening to deal with that a little bit more in detail. But there's the beginning of it all. There it all is. And then consider grace as it shows itself in the way of salvation. Now, the apostle has already been reminding the Ephesian elders of this. He says, you know, I want to remind you of my message. He says, this was it, don't you remember? How I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is again the most amazing and astonishing thing. This is where you see grace. How is a man saved? Isn't that the question? How can a man be just with God? How can I get forgiveness for my sins? How can I get a hope of heaven and of glory? How can I get it? You ask men that question and they'll say, well, you've got to pull yourself together. You've got to give up doing certain things. You've got to start doing other things. You must begin reading your Bible. You must fast and sweat and pray. You must give yourself to doing good works. Perhaps some will say to you, you've even got to go out of some profession and you've got to become a monk or a hermit or an anchorite. Or you've got to give up some career and got to go to the heart of Africa and build a hospital. And then you'll do it. But you see, you've got to do it. And it's a whole time job. You've got to justify yourself by your own works and deeds and your own activities. Oh, how I thank God that I'm in this pulpit to preach and to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. No, no, says Paul again uh, to those 
Romans, this isn't my message that a man justifies himself. It can't be done. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Well, because therein a righteousness from God is revealed. From faith to faith. The thing that gave liberty to poor Martin Luther. Look at that monk in his cell, fasting, sweating, praying, seeing the holiness of God more and more clearly and his own unworthiness and going to the point of despair. Suddenly it flashed, the just shall live by faith. And he was released. And thousands of others were released after him. The Protestant Reformation came into being, not by works, but by faith. And so, you see, the great apostle puts it like this. Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's all it will teach you is the knowledge of sin. But now, listen, the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God which is by faith of Jesus Christ. And to all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Oh, this is his course, his perpetual theme. So he winds up a great argument in Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. This is the grace of God. So he says again in the fourth chapter of Romans, verse 17, uh, verse 16. Therefore, it is a faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed. He can't stop himself. By grace he are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. You see, it comes to this. That as we awaken to a realization of our sinful condition, as we get to realize that we've got to meet this holy God and that none of us can do so, and we are aware of our hopelessness and utter helplessness and realize it's no use saying, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, I'm going to be a better man. You know that you can't keep it up, and if you could, you couldn't undo your past, and you'd never satisfy the demands of an absolute, perfect, holy God. As you realize this utter hopelessness and helplessness, and don't know what to do with yourself, nor where to turn, suddenly, this message comes to you. The message of the grace of God, which tells you, that your salvation is the free gift of God's grace. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. This is the most amazing thing. I don't deserve anything. But here he gives it me all for nothing. Without money and without price. But you say you've got to believe. You have got to believe. But you know, even that's the gift of God. By grace are he saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. He gives you everything. He even gives you the power to believe. For never forget this. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. For they are spiritually discerned. It is all the free gift of God. Let me hurry on. What does he give us? Well, these are some of the things he gives us. And this is, you see, why this apostle says, I'm going on to testify to this gospel of the grace of God until my course is ended. Whether I be put to death or not, it doesn't make any difference to me at all. I just want to tell the whole world about this grace of God. What's it give? Pardon and forgiveness. Free and full. Reconciliation to God. Your sins 
blotted out as a thick cloud. Though they be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. That's the message. That it doesn't matter how much you've sinned, nor how grievously you've sinned, nor how vilely you have sinned. It doesn't matter at all. You come just as you are and believe this message. You're forgiven freely and entirely. There's nothing left of your sin. You are reconciled to God. But you see, it goes beyond it. Justification by faith, says the apostle. What does that mean? Well, it means this, of course, that God not only forgives us, he puts the righteousness of his Son upon us. Now, this is very wonderful to me. I need forgiveness. That's the first thing I'm aware of, and I want forgiveness. But the moment I realize that I'm forgiven, I then begin to realize very acutely that I need something else. If God merely forgave me, I don't know what I'd do with myself. Because how could I stand in the presence of God? And especially since he's forgiven me so freely in his grace. But I do want to stand in his presence. I want to speak to him. I want to know him. I want to spend my eternity with him. How can I? I'm forgiven, you say. Yes, but, oh, I'm so rotten still in my own nature. What can I do? Well, the answer is what's called justification by faith, which means this, that God puts upon you the righteousness of his own son. He's put your sins onto him. He now takes his perfect righteousness and puts it on you. And it's often been compared to a cloak. You remember that great hymn of Count Zinzendorf translated by John Wesley. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in this arrayed with joy shall I lift up my head. Nobody can bring a charge against me. When I'm clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ, bold shall I stand in thy great day. Nothing can stand between me because I am clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Like the father put the robe on the prodigal and the ring on his finger, God puts the righteousness of his own son upon us. He gives us this freely, justified freely by his grace. And that gives you, you see, peace with God. Not only that, he'll give you a new start, a new nature, what we call regeneration, new birth, if you like. Oh, these are all great mysteries. I'm going to come back to these. I'm only giving you a summary of it all this evening. Then the gift of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will be working within you, sanctifying you, giving you power and strength and fitting you and working upon you. You see, when God forgives you and saves you with this grace of his in salvation, he doesn't just leave you uh, to yourselves to struggle on as best you can in this world. He says, no, 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 brethren, I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. It goes on working in you, purifying you, giving you strength and power, bringing Christ near to you, giving you a realization of his presence, so that you can say, I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Here it is. What else? Access to God. Listen to Paul again. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That really means 
that I'm enabled to go into the presence of God and talk to him as my father. I can pray. I'm not left to myself and I'm not filled with doubts when I get on my knees. I know that God is my father. I've got access to him. I can go into his very presence. I can go into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. Oh, but above everything else, I am put into Christ and Christ is in me and in him there are unsearchable riches. He is the head. I am a part of his body. And all the fullness of that head can come flowing even unto me, insignificant little member as I seem to be. Oh, but of his unsearchable riches, it all comes flowing through, circulating in the body. And I am a part of that body. The unsearchable riches of Christ. This is where you begin to understand the exceeding riches of God's grace. So you see these poets... They vie with one another in trying to describe it. What have I got? Well, it says one, sight, riches, healing of the mind. Yea, all I need in thee to find. O Lamb of God, I come. Why, says the Apostle Peter, God hath given you a like precious faith with us. And as the result of this, all things that pertain to life and godliness have already been given us. And we've got exceeding great and precious promises to cover the whole of our eternal future. The exceeding riches of his grace. Let me give you a final thought. The reign and the triumph of grace. Here again is a great theme in the scriptures. The apostle, I've already read you one verse, Romans 4:16. Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed. Grace guarantees that it's sure. Did you know this, my friend? If your salvation and mine depended even to the smallest extent upon us, we would all lose it and we'd all fail. But because it is by grace, it's made sure to all the seed. Or take another way in which he puts it in Romans 5, 20 and 21, moreover the law entered, he says, that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. You see, there's a great fight going on. The power of sin, the reign of sin, and the reign of grace. These are the great antagonists, it's all right, says Paul. The law has added to sin and has multiplied it, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That, as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. These are the things in which he therefore glories. He tells these Romans again in the 6th chapter in verse 14, Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under law but under grace. Conquering grace. Mighty grace. Grace that can never fail. Listen to this. This is perhaps the grandest statement of it all in the 8th chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Listen to this mighty sequence, this logic, this inevitability, this grace of God guaranteeing everything. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. 
For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn amongst many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestine it, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. What's it mean? Oh, it means this, that the great God is putting into practice his eternal plan and scheme, and it's grace, and it's determined to carry it right through. If he's looked upon you, if he's set his heart upon you, if he's called you, he'll glorify you, and nothing can stop it. Therefore, he ends by saying, I am persuaded, I am absolutely certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace triumphant, grace victorious, grace carrying it through to the end. He which hath begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ and nothing can stop him. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Lift up your hearts, lift up your voice. Rejoice, again I say. Rejoice. Well, there, my dear friends, is a very brief and inadequate summary of the main outline of this gospel of the grace of God. Have you realized all this? If not, why not, I ask? Have you realized that this is the gospel? If not, it's probably because you've never seen your need of it. You've been so interested in living in this world and general elections and things like that that you've forgotten that you're a mortal soul, that you've got to die and face God in the judgment. You haven't realized the truth about yourself. You're living in a fool's paradise. You haven't realized that the wrath of God is upon you and may descend upon you at any moment. You haven't realized your condemnation, your helplessness, your hopelessness. Or perhaps it is that you've never seen the glory of what God has done in his grace. Or it may be that you haven't realized that it's an entire gift, free gift of God's grace. You may still be thinking, I've got to do something. I surely must be make myself a little bit better. Listen to the answer. Let not conscience make you linger or of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to see your need of him. This, even that, the Spirit gives you. This he gives you, tis the Spirit's rising beam. What are we going to say? Have you seen something of this grace of God? The gospel of the grace of God. Do you begin to understand why the great apostle felt as he did? That he'd sooner die than stop preaching this. That no enemy could ever put an end to him and his preaching. That it didn't matter what kings and princes and emperors of Rome didn't matter what they said nor what they may try to do. He must testify to this gospel of the grace of God. Look what it had done to him. Look at the difference it had made to him. Look at the glory it was opening out before him. He says, in effect, let them put me to death. What is death? Well, to me to die is gain. It is to be with Christ, which is far better. And so he glories in the gospel of the grace of God.
George Wesley, you see, felt exactly the same thing. That's why he wrote that first hymn we sang tonight. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King. Listen, the triumphs, the triumphs of his grace. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. The triumphs of his grace. You'll find a lot of them in the New Testament. Publicans and sinners. People like the Philippian jailer. Hopeless. Suddenly set free. Triumphs of his grace. The saints of the ages. The dissolute, brilliant, immoral philosopher Augustine. Unable to set himself free with all his philosophy. Set free by the triumphs of his grace. And all the countless hosts of sinners of every description who have likewise known the liberating power of the gospel of the grace of God. I want to end with the way in which Samuel Davis puts it. I like the way he puts it. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are godlike, matchless, and divine. But the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled shine. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? Let us then sing that great hymn of Samuel Davis, hymn number 67. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are godlike, matchless, matchless, godlike and divine. But the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled, shine. 67.
We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.